This morning, the title of my sermon is Consequences and Grace. Consequences and Grace. You know, we're in the part of David's life where David is experiencing the consequences of choices that he has made along the road of his life. And the theme this morning is consequences. A teacher once asked a spelling class to state the difference between the words results and consequences. A bright young girl replied, results are what you expect, consequences are what you get. I thought that is a rather insightful statement. Results are what you expect, consequences are what you get. I want to start this morning by just giving you a few assertions that I think act as kind of baselines for the Christian life. The first one is this, sin can be forgiven, praise God. Sin can be forgiven. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that all of our sin by the grace of God can be forgiven. Uh, Nathan reminded David of this truth when he said to David in 2 Samuel 12, 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. God had graciously moved into the life of King David in spite of the reckless nature of his sin and had granted him something that was completely undeserved. And that is the truth of forgiveness. But in the same text, Nathan will remind David that choices have consequences. Sin has results. And so in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, he says, Out of your own house I am going to bring calamity upon you. The sword will not depart from your house. Because by doing this, the sin that David had committed with Bathsheba and Uriah, you have made the enemies of the Lord show contempt. David had brought dishonor upon the name of God. And though David uh, experiences very powerfully the gracious forgiveness of God, there are consequences that follow in the trail of our decision-making. David was the king. And in his actions, he had dishonored the name of God. So the lesson of, of this initial summary is this. Forgiveness does not eliminate the consequences of sin. And the verse that comes to mind is Galatians 6. Verses 7 and 8, it says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And I think when, when Paul says, don't be deceived, I think he's saying something like this. Don't let someone impress the opposite thinking upon you. That is that I can do what I want and I will never face consequences for my decisions. Don't use the fact that God will forgive to become justification for choices that dishonor Him. Okay, and there's something of a, in our, in our age, of a cheap grace that, well, if you sin, just ask God to forgive you and He'll forgive you and that's it. And the truth is, God will forgive you every time you come to Him with an honest and repentant heart. But the forgiveness of sins does not mean that the consequences of sin don't linger. And I think this account, uh, 2 Samuel 15 through 19, I think this account of the uprising of Absalom and this war between a father and a son is here to give us a very strict and strong warning, a caution sign. Sin can lead to painful consequences. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. He said, the pain of harvest often eclipses the pleasure of planting in sin. Sin is often for us exciting, adventurous, enticing. 
It brings temporary pleasure and satisfies, but the pleasure that sin brings is short-lived. That's why the Bible says, do I believe in the book of Proverbs, that there's pleasure in sin for a season. The reason we're attracted to it is because there is something in it that seems to promise some delight, some form of pleasure. We need to remember that sin does bring pleasure, but it also brings consequences, and the pain of the harvest often eclipses the pleasure of the planting. The choices that we make in our lives affect those that are in close relationship to us. The decisions of parents affect children. The decisions of children affect families. The decisions of leaders affect the people that they lead. So I think the thrust of this text biblically is live carefully. You know, in the book of Ephesians, Paul or in Colossians, Paul will say to the believers there, walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise. Think about the decisions you're making. Every parent has impressed this upon their children, right? What were you thinking? Right? You've had that response. I don't know how many times my dad said that to me. The time I left the motorcycle outside of the garage door when it was snowing, because we were out thinking it'd be fun to ride in the snow, my dad gets in his truck with a plow in the garage and backs it out. And all I heard was, what were you thinking? Well, I wasn't. You see, we tend to not face the, the uh, severity and the, and the predictability of consequences. God, however, in this call to walk carefully, promises us through this text that he'll give you the strength to endure the consequences and glorify his name. Because in this story, Israel needs a king, and David is the anointed king. And so even though David is going to face this severe, rather abrupt and startling consequences of choices. You also, as you study through this text, will beautifully see the hand of God superintending and overwhelming David's sin with his grace. So that at the end of the day, God's name is honored. God is glorified in spite of and even through the pain that his children endure. I want you to look at 2 Samuel 15 with me this morning. And that's where I want to read just a few verses to help set context Uh, If you remember chapter 13, verse 1, and chapter 14, the last verse, introduced a character named Absalom, the son of David. Okay, he is the eldest son of David, so logically he would be next in line for the throne. Okay, because that is just the way it works in royalty. Okay, This, this young man, Absalom, is next in line. And chapters 13 and 14 bring him to the center of the story. He becomes the kind of the main uh, or, or key actor in this story along with David. Okay, so when, when verse 1 of chapter 15 starts, it says, in the course of time. That is, as things in terms of David's consequences of sin are unfolding, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. But what a, a powerful and beautiful picture he designs for himself. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came out with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and good, but there is no representative from the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge. And by the way, that is his desire to be king because the chief judge in a kingdom chief judge in the kingdom was the king himself. This betrays Absalom's intent. He desires to be appointed judge. Then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me. 
and I would see that they've received justice. And there's a sense in which David is playing off of the ineptitude of his dad in guilt, his inability to bring justice when horrific things are happening in the environment around him. So I want to walk through this story with you. First, the conspiracy. Verses 1 through 12 are going to tell us the conspiracy of Absalom. Uh, The first thing you'll notice is that he's good at posturing. Okay? The text tells us that when, when Absalom comes to town, he's got 50 valiant men running ahead of him. And he's behind them in a chariot. You kind of get the picture. He's got this flowing hair. The Bible tells us that when his hair was pulled or cut once a year, it weighed six pounds. It was a, kind of a mark of beauty and stature for Absalom. And he would come riding on his chariot, hair flowing, 50 men ahead. And it was quite the scene. Obviously, Absalom craved to be in the limelight, loved to be in the center, and was jealous for political influence. He is a loved celebrity. One writer said, he has great style but no substance. And you'll see that as you study, study through his life. These first few verses of the text are, are literally this. It basically, Absalom is running for office. So he's, he's posturing himself and he's at the city gate, the place of decision making. And when people would come with problems, he'd pull them aside and say, hey, so, so what's going on, bud, in your life? Where are you from? What's the problem you have? And that's a shame the king doesn't really care about his people. But if, you know, if I was king, I'd, I'd meet your needs. I'd give you a just verdict for your situation. I would take care of your needs. And in this way, the Bible tells us in verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites. He would, verse 5, take a hold of them and kiss them. Right? Hey, brother, how's it going? Absalom behaved in this way, verse 6 says, toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. He would slip in. And so, or in this way, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Verse 7 tells us this went on for four years. Okay, now, you immediately have to say to yourself, I wonder if David is aware of this situation. Can I tell you something? I don't think there is any question that David is fully aware as king of what's going on, of this subservience. But what have we learned about David over the last few chapters? We've learned that he is a man weakened by sin and its consequences. He finds himself unable to act in relationship to issues related to his immediate family. He was a complete failure in the context of his home. Unable to confront Absalom. Afraid or feeling guilty. We don't know exactly which, but one of the two is delegitimizing this king, David. And his son is rising in power and influence. Verse verse 10. The Bible tells us Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel. And this is following what? Okay, Following him going to his father and saying, hey dad, do you remember when I was separated from you for a couple of years? And his dad's yes. He says, well, when I was in Hebron, I made a vow to God that if God ever brought me back into Jerusalem, into your presence, then I would go back to Hebron and I would offer sacrifices to God. So in this cloak of religiosity, what is Absalom doing? He's he's hiding his conspiracy in in, in, in a false narrative that he's going to Hebron to give sacrifices. Really, what is he doing? He's going to Hebron so that from there he can send out messengers into all of the tribes of Israel saying, Absalom is about to be king. When you hear the trumpet blow, that's the day. And so this is how the, 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 the treacherous story of Absalom unfolds. In verse 13, after this, uh, this 
proclamation is made and the trumpets sound, verse 13, someone comes to David. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people are with Absalom. And so this, this conspiracy begins to bubble and overflow in a way that is unavoidable and undefeatable from the perspective of David. So David makes a plan to leave the city. And verse 14 gives us some insight into David. It says, David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. So here's, in, 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 to David's credit, what happens he understands that there's going to be a bloodbath in the capital city of Jerusalem if he stays there. He knows that the force that Absalom is bringing is overwhelming. They're unprepared to face this onslaught. So what does David do? In an honorable way, he leaves the city so that the city is not destroyed and to spare the lives of people. You see, there's only one problem in this story, and it has a name. Its name is Absalom. And there's only one person that Absalom really wants to take out so that he can become king, and that's David. And there's a sense in which David wisely and selflessly flees down to the Jordan River and eventually will cross over it, and that's where the battle will take place. So that the loss of life will be limited. Now, as David flees, you're going to see God begin to move in his life. And it's going to be evidenced in the stories of three people. The first one is a man named Ittai. He is a confidant of the king. His name comes up in verse 19. Uh, he, 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 he comes to David. He wants to go along with David. And uh, David resists him. He says, Ittai, you're, you're a foreigner. This, you don't have to endanger your life. And what does Ittai say? Ittai says, David, I'm here. And it's interesting when, that, that you'll note that Ittai is a Gittite. He's one of the groups of people that David hung out, when, out with when he was running from King Saul. And this blessing now is coming back to him. And David says, you don't have to come. And Ittai begs favor. And, and at the end of verse 21, he says, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. You cannot avoid me. I'm going with you. So you find this 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 hearts of people being drawn to David for his protection. Secondly, in verse 24, you come across a very uh, powerful individual. He's the high priest. And there's another priest named Abiathar. This, this guy's name is Zadok. And verse 24 says, Zadok was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God, the, the golden box where God's presence was manifested to his people. He wants to take the ark, and he wants to go with David. Why? Because Zadok knows that David is the anointed and appointed king of God. And so as Zadok observes this situation unfolding, he's, he's saying, I'm, my loyalty is with David. He's the man that God has appointed, so I'm going to stay loyal to him. And it, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting to notice what David says to Zadok. In order, Zadok wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant. He wants to bring the blessing of God. And what does David say? David's kind of like, I, I don't want the Ark of God, that manifestation of God's presence, to be used as a good luck charm. It belongs in Jerusalem. And if God wants to deliver me from this circumstance, I'll see his face back in Jerusalem. That's where I'll come and worship God. And David, to his credit again, refuses to go down a cheap road. 
as he deals with the consequences. He tells Zadok, uh, Zade, you're my friend. Go, take the ark back to the city. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 26. David says, if God says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good. But if he brings victory, I'll go and I will worship him back in the capital city of Jerusalem. And so you find this beautiful heart of David. Now, underneath of this story, you're going to find as you read through this, that David sends Zadok and Abiathar back into Jerusalem. And he says something very interesting to them uh, at the, uh, let's see here, at the end of verse 28. He says, I will wait at the fords in the wilderness. The fords would be at the edge of the river Jordan. Until word comes from you, Zadok and Abiathar, to inform me. So what is David doing? He's asking for God's direction. He's seeking to be honorable. At the same time, he's planning wisely. Zadok and Abiathar, as priests, you go back. Be my ears in the city of Jerusalem. Listen to what's going on and bring me wise advice. Give me uh, healthy and strong guidance. So they're going to act a little bit as uh, kind of a central intelligence agency for David. Now, the next thing that happens comes out in verse 31. David's going up the Mount of Olives. There's deep weeping and sorrow, verse 30. Verse 30. In verse 31, it says, Now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Now, if you study a little bit further in the chapters that we're looking at this morning, you're going to find that Ahithophel is a wise counselor, like the oracles of God. He is a trusted advisor. And when David hears that Ahithophel has gone over to the side of Absalom, it strikes him in the heart. It's a a strong blow to the possibilities of David's success. So what does David do? Verse 31, it says, So David prayed, Lord, Turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? God, yeah, I, I realize Ahithophel seems to have betrayed. He's going over to the side of Absalom. He's a great advisor. I'm asking you, turn his counsel into foolishness. David's doing two things here. He's saying, God, I trust you. And if you bring me back into Jerusalem, I'll worship you there. He's praying. But he's also doing what? He's also taking practical steps to organize his life before God. So this idea of praying and trusting God does not eliminate my responsibility to live wisely, to make wise decisions. I think it's one of the lessons that kind of emerges out of this text. As David prays for someone to, or for something to happen to Ahithophel's counsel, I want you to notice how quickly uh, the answer to this prayer arrives. Verse 32. When David arrived at the summit, where the people used to worship. That's the summit of the Mount of Olives as he's going down towards the River Jordan. Hushai the archite was there to meet him. And what you're going to learn is Hushai is also an advisor to the king. Okay, his robe is torn. He's got dust on his head. Uh, he wants to go with David. And David says, Hushai, do me a favor. Go back and be my eyes and ears in the palace. And, and, and immediately David prays that Ahithophel's counsel would be confounded Hushai, another counselor, wise counselor, walks in, and David's request to him is, don't go with me. Go back to the city and be my eyes and ear, which is a risky task. Why? Hushai was David's advisor. Hushai's going to walk in and say to Absalom, I'm yours. I'm loyal. And Hushai's response is, he's not going to believe that. 
You know what David says? You go and you trust God. And it's fascinating to watch what happens. Uh, as verse 37 says, Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. Fascinating timing, right? Just coincidence. So Absalom's coming in. Hushai's coming in. They have a discussion about the nature of Hushai's relationship to Absalom. Absalom buys it because he's, he's crazed with power. Okay, he's distorted in his thinking. He's accepting of everything that's coming. And so he immediately buys into this story. Now, what I, want, what I want you to realize is that in the middle of this situation of confusion and consequence, you see the hand of God providentially directing the steps of David through these three encounters. And then as you go into chapter 16, it tells us about a, name, a man named Ziba. Now, Ziba is the caretaker for Mephibosheth, and what, what Ziba does is, as David is coming out, Ziba comes riding up with all the supplies that David and his men need. If you read through the verses here, you're going to find there's cheese, there's milk, there's bedding, there's water, everything that's needed for the army to survive. And so as David just yields to God's uh, plan in his life, as he takes the consequences of his sin, he gets repeated indications that God is with him. That God is for him, that God is protecting him and watching over him. And I think this is just a, a very beautiful picture uh, that, that is before us. And, and so after this uh, encounter in verses 5 and following, you'll see an encounter with a man named Shimei. And you're going to find out that Shimei is a rascal. He despises David. And what he's going to do is, as David is going down the Mount of Olives on the other side, down towards uh, the River Jordan, Hushai is cursing him. He's throwing stones in the air. He's throwing dust at the people. The text says he was pelting David with rocks. You've got to ask yourself a question. If you were King David, how would you respond to that? Well, in the past, David's response was pretty abrupt, right? Pretty uh, short and curt and strong. You find David is a man who is maturing in the grace of God. And as David uh, endures this circumstance uh, with Shimei, one of his uh, generals says, hey, let's just knock him off. Kill him. That's what kings could do. You know what David says? What if it's the hand of God? What if God has told him to do this? And you know what David does? He just submits he comes under that and just says, God, you're allowing it. I'll endure it. Glorify your name. That's all he says. It's a fascinating shift or change. <clears throat> well, what follows that, <clears throat> as David entrusts himself to God, Absalom arrives at the city. And verse 15 of chapter 16 uh, tells us this, that, that, uh, that uh, David or, or that Absalom has come into the city, verse 15, and it says... Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem. Ahithophel was with him. Then Hushai the archite, David's confidant, that is his inside man, uh, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king. And the king, uh, Absalom falls for that, uh, that ruse, if you will, and uh, he brings Hushai into his close group of confidence. Well, what happens next is there is a dueling of advisors. So, so the king is, is in a difficult circumstance. I, when I think of this, if you want a, a contemporary analogy, think of something like the North Korea situation, okay? You want to talk about presidents that have a lot of hair, okay? We're getting there, Absalom, right? So think of the president calling it advisors. Here's what a good president does. He listens to the advice of carefully trusted people, 
And then he makes a decision based on that advisement about which direction they're going to go. That's exactly what happens in this, in this account. Uh, Ahithophel comes with advice that turns out to be spot on. Ahithophel's advice is this. David is a mighty man. The men around David are fearsome. If you allow them to, to orchestrate, if you allow them to organize and structure, you'll never win. And so Ahithophel's advice is what? Go down and cut the head off the snake and it's over. He says, if you kill David, this whole thing is over, Absalom. That's what I would advise. Well, then there's, and Absalom's like, well, okay, that sounds good. He goes, what do you think? Everybody's like, yeah. And somebody says, hey, why don't you ask Hushai what he thinks? Remember, he's the one that David sent his confidant. And so Absalom brings in Hushai, now trusting him. And Hushai has a totally different take. What he says is, oh, no, David, I would not do that. He is a fearsome, or, or Absalom, I wouldn't do that. David is a fearsome warrior. It won't work. You need to be organized to take him on. And so what is, what is Hushai doing? He's appealing to the pride of Absalom. Absalom, exercise your military might and prowess. Structure, organize, be strategic. And Absalom, in his pride, thinks what? Oh, I like the option of me. See, in 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 in, in Ahithophel's advice is just send people down to kill David and be done with it. They're wandering, they're straggling, they're, they're tired, which is all true. But you also see God providing for him, right? So Hushai appeals to Absalom's pride. And Absalom sits back and he thinks about all, that's, all of this. And, and, and finally, the text tells us that, uh, that, that Absalom decides to choose the advice of Hushai, and I want you to look down into verse 14, okay? Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. It wasn't, but that's how it appeared. For the Lord, I want you to listen to this, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster upon Absalom. And all of a sudden, the penny drops, right? You can see this providential, sovereign hand of God working to defeat a rebel. That's what's going on in the story. The Lord has ordained to protect by Hushai. Well, then what happens is this. That word goes to David. Uh, Abiathar and Zadok the priest tell their two sons to go, and you can read that part of the story on your own. There's, there's a, a, a fascinating circumstance that occur, occurs at a well, and the men hide inside of a well, and God protects them. And then these intelligence agents get down to David and say, David, you better get across the river soon, because Absalom is amassing an army to come and destroy you. All right, and so God providentially, through Zadok and the wisdom of David, is, 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 is protecting his king. And so they go over the Jordan, and they go to a place called uh, Mahanaim. And when they get to Mahanaim, you find that they, again, are met by a, a guy. I think his name is Barzillai. He's a, he's a, a trusted friend of David. You, as you read further in the text, you find he's 80 years old. And what is he doing? He's bringing out all kinds of provisions for David. And he's, he's bringing comfort and provision and food and everything that's needed so that the army of David can be strong for the task that is in front of them. Well, when you come to chapter... 18, you're going to find the, uh, the ensuing battle that takes place. There's a discussion about strategy. Uh, 
And David says, I want to go into the battle. And what did the confidants of David say? You know what they say to David? David, you're more valuable than 10,000 of us. And so he, he has his three generals. He divides them up and he says, I'm going to ride out with you guys. I'm going to lead like I should. And the advisors say to him, David, you stay back. You, you have no idea how valuable you are to the people of Israel. And, and how do you know that that's true? You know that's true because when Ahithophel was designing David's destruction, he knew that if you took out David, everything would fall and Absalom would become king. So you, you, you learn the value of David from both sides. Both understand how strategic he is. And the soldiers also understand how strategic and important it is that they get to the man Absalom and take him out. So verse 18, David mustered the men who were with him, and he sent out his troops. And as the troops are going out, you find one request from David, and it's in verse 5 of chapter 18. Verse 5 of chapter 18. As they're riding out the war to war, David commanded the three generals, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. He said, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And you're thinking to yourself, is this grace? Is this guilt? What is going on with David? These generals aren't going out to capture a man and put him in therapy to help him deal with his anger. They're going out to war. Absalom has amassed a force, formidable. They are setting their designs on terminating David's monarchy. They're guilty of treason. And you have to think to yourself, what is David thinking? And I think what you have is a heart overwhelmed by the consequences of sin. He's seeing it played out in the life of his children over and over and over again. Though forgiven, wrestling with, 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 with brutal news on a regular basis. Well, the men go out to war. And verse 9 tells us pretty quickly and clearly what happened. I, I'm going to say from, from verses 6 to 8, you find that the battle is intense and many lives are being lost. David is absolutely correct. This battle in the city of Jerusalem would have been devastating to the whole nation. So the wisdom of David comes out there. The text also says that the forest killed more than the sword. It's an interesting statement. Because some commentators will read that and you, and you begin to get the impression that God is allowing the, the, the nature of the battlefield to take more lives than the sword took. That's the, kind of the nature of the area. And, and when you come to verse 9, it says, now Absalom happened to meet David's men. And so you have one of these happen-tos that have a sense of sovereignty and plan in it, right? Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. Now, I want you to think back. The, the thing that Absalom took pride in was his presence. He had this prestigious look to him, right? And that sign of glory, that cause of pride for Absalom, that, 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 that which that made him look like he had something in style but no substance, that gets caught in a tree and the mule continues on and you have this almost horrific, sad picture of the son of the king, the oldest son of the king, hanging between heaven and earth by his hair. One of the uh, servants of King David comes across Absalom, and he, what does he remember? He remembers the king said, don't do harm to Absalom. 
And he goes back and he says to Joab, the kind of the more rambunctious uh, general of David. He, he goes to Joab and he says, hey, Joab, I, I just saw Absalom hanging in a tree. And, and Joab is, he's perplexed. He's nonplussed. Why didn't you kill him? And end this conflict, end this bloodletting. And Joab has simply has had it with the sons of David. He has had it. The chaos that they have been bringing, he's had it. What does he do? He goes over and he, 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 he throws darts into the body of Absalom and terminates his life. It's a, a horrific picture, a sad picture, a tragic picture. As Absalom dies, and some of his men then take him down from the tree, cast him in a hole, and cast up a pile of stones over him. I want to make two comments about that. Here's what the Bible says in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the only other, you only find two other times in the Old Testament where someone is buried and a pile of rocks is cast up against them as a sign. As a sign. This is what happens to those that defy the king that God appoints. And so Absalom ends in what? Total abject disgrace. And the battle's over. Now, what's very interesting is in verse verse 19, as you come to the end of this kind of battle situation, you find Absalom, it says he, he had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley. He's not even king yet. But in the king's valley, he had erected, sometime during this insurrection, a monument to himself. Okay, a monument that when people look at it, they would say, oh, Absalom, what a gorgeous spectacle of a man. They would, they would give a heap upon him, praise and honor. For he thought to himself, I have no son to carry on my name. He named the pillar after himself. It is called Absalom's monument to this day. And nearby is a pile of rubble under which the body of this sorry scoundrel lies, defeated. He dies disgraced and shameful in his death and in his burial. The news gets to David. The victory for David is what? It's bitter and sweet at some level, but the bitterness is overwhelming. We don't, we don't know exactly why things occur the way they occur in this text, but here's what we know. We know that the men of David, three times, and I'll just give you three verses, verse 19, verse 28, and verse 31 of chapter 19, Three times the men of David attribute the victory to God. They can see over and over and over again that God has protected his king and brought deliverance. David can't see it. Why? Because this issue of consequences and overwhelming guilt is kind of flooding over David in this circumstance. And when he hears of the death of his son, Verse 33 is is the most poignant statement. It says, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway. And he wept as he went. And as he went, he said, oh, Absalom, my son. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. And you've got to think to yourself, wow. Wow. David is overcome by regret. And I, I, I'm going to tell you this. I believe David, in, because of the extent of this weeping that's going to go on for a couple verses, the extent of it, 
you see David kind of overstepping a line, uh, seemingly unable to appreciate God's hand in the victory that everyone else could clearly see, overcome perhaps by regret and even selfish pity, unfettered sorrow that dislocates him from reality. And finally, Joab comes in and he says, What are you thinking? David, you're groveling. You're unable to see that God today delivered you. Yes, it was your son, and that is heartbreaking. It's sad, but it had to happen. It's why Joab, when he steps up, he does what he has to do. It doesn't say he wanted to do it, but it's what needed to be done. And the other thing he's going to say to David is this. David, if you keep weeping like this, you're causing your men who went to war to protect your life to think that their efforts were a waste. And so Joab kind of takes David kind of in and he shakes him and says, you need to begin to act like a king. God has brought deliverance and you're unable to see it. And even a reckless man like Joab is used to bring some type of clarity to David in this situation. And then verse 15 of chapter 19 tells us that David finally returns and as he comes back, and as he's moving back towards Jerusalem, here's the, kind of the last picture of this story. He encounters this guy named Shimei again. And what does Shimei do? He, he crosses the Jordan River. He says, man, I'm here to help you get across the river. Uh, I'm so sorry. And he's, here's what we don't know. We don't know how earnest the statements of Shimei are, uh, 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 how a how, how, uh, uh, truthful his statements are. But he goes out and meets the king. He bows down before him. Verse 20, he says, I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord, the king. Abishai, the general, says, shouldn't he die? I mean, he declared treason against the king. He called down imprecatory statements upon the king's head. He wished for his death. He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, in this broken state, experiencing grace himself, he replied by saying, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? The king said to Shimei, you shall not die. Now, folks, this is how the story ends. And David moves his way back to Jerusalem. So what are the principles quickly that apply from this account? Well, I think number one, I would say to you this morning, we avoid the consequences of sin by guarding our hearts and guarding our choices. Folks, we need to be careful. Because the decisions that we make deeply affect the people that are closest to us. Uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he'll reap. So can I encourage you this morning, we, have, we avoid the consequences and we, we limit them by guarding our hearts and guarding our choices. Secondly, when you're facing the consequences of sin, trust in God's grace to sustain and his providence to guide. And you see, what you see in David is a man who's finally giving himself over to God. He's, he's learning through this circumstance and through the consequences that God is bringing into his life. He's learning how to walk in grace and truth. Shimei, in the past, head off. In this case, he says, you've got to forgive him. 
Something is, something is changing in David. When facing consequences, trust in God's grace to sustain and his providence to guide, even if the path is hard. You know, Psalm 3 is written out of this experience. Psalm 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You bestow glory on my head. I will not fear 10,000 men drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, and deliver. From the Lord comes deliverance. You know what you find? David is a man much less trusting in himself and more trusting in his God. That's a great place to be in our lives. And the last truth I think that emerges from this story that is this. In Jesus Christ, our vilest sin is treatable and curable. When I got the message about Dan Slack's health situation, I thought those are powerful words. And I was studying this text when I got these words. There's hope for the vilest sinner because the cancer of sin in our lives is curable by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And over David's life would hang this placard, an imperfect, graciously forgiven sinner. That's the story of David. Dealing with the consequences of sin and yet also displaying repeatedly the amazing grace of God. We find forgiveness by grace alone, through faith alone, in the precious blood of Jesus Christ alone. His grace is enough and it gives hope. Will you think with me real quickly of a couple parallels to Jesus? When David leaves the city of Jerusalem, he crosses a brook called Kidron weeping. And he goes up a mountain called the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. A thousand years later, the Son of God will step across the book Kidron, weeping as he goes. He will go into the Garden of Gethsemane, not facing the consequence of his own sin, but the consequence of mine. There he will plead with his father, is there another way out of this circumstance? And nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I also think of the death of Absalom and the death of Jesus. Absalom, hanging from a tree, cursed for his own sin and rebellion. Pierced, shamed, humiliated, and buried behind a pile of stones as a permanent sign of his disgrace without God. Jesus hung on a tree in my place for the consequences of my sin. On that tree, he became a curse for you and I. He stood in my place. He was pierced through for my transgressions, as Absalom was. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace fell upon him. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. You see, Absalom by his wounds was disgraced. By the wounds of our glorious Savior, we are healed. And so I come to the end of this text. And these words come to mind. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. 
Hallelujah. What a Savior. A Savior who comes to reclaim ruined sinners, just like David. And see, sometimes we, we, we look at our relationship with God and we think there's no hope. I hope you can look at David and say, if there's hope for David, there's hope for me. And I want to trust a king that gives such amazing grace, a king like Jesus. This morning we're going to share in the Lord's table as we conclude our service. And as we do that, we're going to invite you to, uh, to come to the front to partake of the elements that symbolize and proclaim the fact that Jesus Christ hung on a cross, was broken, was pierced, shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven. Uh, if you've trusted Christ and he's your savior and you know him and you're resting in him, I want to invite you this morning, come and partake of the elements. If you've never trusted Christ, if your heart is being drawn by the work of the Spirit of God, would you this morning say to him, Father, I acknowledge to you today that I am a sinner in need of a great savior. Today I see Jesus is a great and glorious savior. And today I want to trust in him. I would encourage you then, come, eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Celebrate what the cross of Christ so powerfully and beautifully proclaims for us. Uh, what we do as a church family is we'll stay in our seats. We'll have ushers come, take the elements, and bring them, pass them out, and then we'll partake of those elements together as Pastor James leads us. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It's a challenging text that we look at this morning, but we, we thank you, God, that we serve a glorious and great Savior. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for your willingness to hang as accursed for us in our place and shedding your blood so that all who would believe and confess could find forgiveness of their sins and hope in Jesus Christ. Father, would you bless in this communion service as we take time to remember the shed blood and the broken body of our Savior Jesus. It's in his name that we all pray and God's people said, amen, amen.